0: This Lord's Day we come to the 31st sermon in our series on the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ communicates to us His delight to do God's will and the joy that He has in it. Christ prays that we will enter into His joy. We are to be a joyous, obedient band of brothers with Christ, our Prince and our Kinsman Redeemer, knit together in joy, love, faith, and courage. The purpose is that in the end, all the joyous things Christ promised will be accomplished in every one of us who have trusted in Him. No wonder Christ prayed that His joy would be fulfilled in His people. His prayer cannot fail for any of us. Christ's joy must be fulfilled in us. What He joys in must be accomplished in every one of His people, and when it is, His joy floods over us all as well. What brings joy to Christ in the end are the same things that bring joy to us all. We come to share with Jesus a common enthusiasm in the wonderful works that He has done on our behalf. What Christ delights in is His sacrifice It takes away our sin and reconciles us to a holy God and justifies us and declares us perfect before God in Christ and rescues our bodies from sin and death and corruption. A principal means used by God to fulfill Christ's joy in us is the miraculous work of the Holy Ghost. By Him we are made alive who once were dead in our trespasses and sins And we're brought to faith by the Holy Ghost in our Lord Jesus. Not stopping with that, though, God sends the Holy Ghost to indwell every believer, to knit our hearts unto His, to adopt us by His Spirit as His sons. The Holy Ghost also comforts us by drawing us to the knowledge of all the things that bring joy to Christ. On the night He was betrayed, Jesus promised that all this would happen. The God of all comforts not only comforts us by making Christ our high priest forever with his sacrifice that saves us, his promise to raise us from the dead, everlasting life and glory at the last day, but God also institutionalizes that comfort. He instantiates that comfort in the Holy Ghost who indwells all believers. As Christ promised, we are not left to ourselves to remember the comfort of God, but the Holy Ghost is actively comforting us by prompting us to recall how God comforts us and by instilling in us the fulfilled joy of Christ over us. The Holy Ghost is constantly stirring these things up in our minds and in our hearts. All the character of Christ the Holy Ghost conveys to believers by taking of Christ and showing it unto us. Thus, the Holy Ghost makes a unity with Christ and the Father by making us to rejoice in the same things, our Lord Jesus' salvation of us by the death that He died. In fact, if it weren't for the Holy Ghost's power working in us, we wouldn't believe the gospel in the first place. We wouldn't receive the gift of salvation. We wouldn't be filled with joy unspeakable because we would still be dead in our sins. But the Holy Ghost works miraculously to plant in us all the things necessary to instigate the joy and rejoicing of Christ in us. His joy is fulfilled in us by the power of the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost dwells within every believer and works in us faith and knowledge and joy and obedience, our hearts are knit together with Christ and the Father's and we are entangled together in love and peace and rejoicing as the Spirit of Christ exhorted and promised us in Psalm 40. Let all those who seek Thee rejoice and be glad in Thee. Let such as love Thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. All of this will continue until that time when Christ raises us up unto physical perfection at the last day. Now, we come, I believe, this Lord's Day to the last in our discussion of the delight of Christ to do God's will, that is to be made a sacrifice and to shove aside all the animal sacrifices that pointed to him, but that could never take away sin. We read in Hebrews 10 at verse 4, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, that is Christ, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Now this Lord's Day we come, of course, to the ultimate statement. It's found in Scripture of the joy of Christ in the work that He did on the cross. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 12 at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now notice that it says that Christ, because of the joy that He anticipated that was set before Him, He endured the cross and despised the shame. But it says that we're to look to Christ in the context of Him being the author and finisher of our faith. So many places in the Scripture, the firstness and the lastness, the beginning and the ending, the do-all and end-all of the gospel and of the power of God towards us is found in Christ Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the alpha and omega of all things. He's the genesis and the completion of it. Christ is the basis of our faith. He is the repository, if you will, of what we place our trust in, of who we place our trust in, He is the cause of our faith wrought by and through the Holy Ghost. Because you remember, faith is a gift of God. The more I read the scripture, the more I'm convinced that if your faith is not the faith that is the gift of God, it is a false faith and it will fail one day or another if it's something you've generated, if it's something you've ginned up, if it's something that you have screwed your mind into believing, then it's not going to be the real faith which is the gift of God. Because in our lostness and bondage to sin and rebellion against God, we're not able to believe the gospel and to trust in the Lord Jesus. But because He gives us this gift of faith, because Christ is the author of it and the finisher, then it is a faith that will last and will bring us unto rejoicing and glory. But you remember that Hebrews 12 follows hard on after Hebrews 11, which is that great hall of the faithful saints that went before. And all those examples of faith are at their heart caused by Christ and based upon His promised redemption by His sacrifice for our sin. You remember the first instance of faith is Abel who offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, and that sacrifice pointed to the substitute, the Lord Jesus, who one day would come. And so we have all these examples of faith of which Christ is the author and finisher. He finishes it up. On the cross, He said, it is finished. The whole basis and ground of our faith unto salvation in the Lord Jesus, He finished at the cross. But all that we hope for, the deposit of our faith is fulfilled in and by Christ. His saving us, His blood justifying us, His mighty work in us, transforming us into His image, His raising us up to eternal life, at the last day, everything we believe and trust for in Jesus started with Him and He surely finishes it up for us. Because we do not drag ourselves across the finish line along with our faith. No, the Lord Jesus plants by the Holy Ghost that faith to begin with, is the basis of it, has done all the work behind it, executes it, carries it out, And one day He will bring us across the finish line. He will finish it up for us. He is the author and finisher of our faith. But then it says, who for the joy set before Him. That joy we have spoken of over and over and over again these last many Sundays. The joy of Christ in the fulfillment of the faith of which He is the author and finisher that He had set before Him the night, the evening before He went to the cross, that great joy that He anticipates, that motivates Him, that delight to do the will of God. And a joy in the consequences that were surely followed. Jesus' sacrifice was not made on speculation, as some people would put it. He wasn't a speculator. He wasn't a wild catter. He's going to try this, and if that didn't work, try that. No, he had a sure guarantee, you see, because he was the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek by a solemn oath of God before he was incarnate, before he came into this world, before he got anywhere near the foot of the cross. So the joy that he spoke of was no mere speculation. It wasn't a mere possibility. It was the saving of his people from destruction And it was sure to be accomplished, sure to be accomplished by the promise of God and by the will of Christ to perform that which God delights in. His resurrection and ours, the exaltation had been foretold. This was not a matter of speculation. You see, we as believers, since we are in the faith, that Christ is the author and finisher of. The Scriptures tell us that we have this great hope, but that doesn't mean like I hope I win the lottery or I hope everything turns out all right. That's a sure, substantial, and guaranteed and relied upon thing that has not yet taken place, but that we are sure will. That's the whole point of the faith is the sureness that Christ gives us by the Holy Ghost, that we will certainly enter into these joyous things, and have, in part, already done so. But you remember, we read this morning, providentially, Psalm 16, where the certainty of Christ's death and quick resurrection, and of His eternity in the presence of God in His humanity, that is, in Christ's humanity, was clearly laid out through the prophecy of the psalmist David, Of course, it was the Spirit of Christ that spoke those words to David and He wrote them down for us. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell nor suffer thine holy one to see corruption. At thy right hand there is fullness of joy. How can Christ not have a sure hope and a solid joy that was set before Him? The hope our Lord Jesus rested in with the promises He would die but not see corruption were laid forth in ancient times by the Spirit of Christ. And the final fulfillment of the delight of God to execute the duties of His everlasting high priestly duty imposed by oath of God upon Christ to make that one offering for sin that saves everybody that Christ died for and does away with the types and shadows of Old Testament animal offerings that could never save us. This was His delight. This was His joy. This was His anticipation as He went to the cross. We will have an eternity to come to grasp with the joy that Christ had set before Him. But we have an idea from the Scriptures. The Holy Ghost works up in our hearts a remembrance of what the Scriptures teach and points us to a greater understanding and rejoicing over the joy that was set before Jesus before He went to the cross. And with that set before Him, the text tells us He endured the cross despising the shame. Christ endured the cross despising the shame. Now the cross was not a happy thing in and of itself. It was horrible. It was detestable. It was shameful. It was a terror to every man that looked upon it, much less that endured it. And so it says, because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, despising the shame means that he treated the shame with contempt, that he treated it as if it were nothing compared to the joy that was set before him. As it were, it was a scoffing type contempt that no matter what was done to him, he knew that on the end of it, there would be that joy that he would enter into that he anticipated. Compared to the promised joy, the shame of the cross was as nothing. The cross was not a pro forma thing, however. It was not just a box to check off in the work of Christ. No, it was the most detestable Terror that any man could endure. When it came to Jesus, however, there were additional horrors of the cross that you and I could barely anticipate or articulate. I mean, he was to be treated as guilty for our sins laid on him. He who had done no sin was to have imputed to him all of our crimes, and he was to be treated as if he were guilty of them. And in Psalm 40 and 69, we see that he embraced them as if they were his sins, even though he had done no sin ever ever in his life or ever would. It required him to own them as his own, though he was sinless. It made him a curse for us, subject to all of God's promised just wrath for sinners. A lot of people just blow off that text that says Christ was made a curse for us redeemed us from the curse of the law, because they don't really grasp what it means to be under the curse of the law. God told Moses, and he reported it to the children of Israel, that a person who violated his law was cursed by the law, which didn't just mean, I curse thee, I curse thee, I curse thee. What it meant was that he was therefore subject to the wrath and judgment of God for his sin. Behind the curse is the promised judgment. The soul that sinneth it shall die. It must die. The everlasting justice and holiness of God made it such that these things were irrevocable and a person who was cursed by the law was treated as if he had broken the law, which in our case we have, and then therefore the penalties that were levied by the law, which are death and ultimately, we now know, everlasting torment, those judgments therefore fell upon the person with the curse. And the curse was the promise that those judgments would fall. The condition that was placed upon sinners that they would be judged. And so he was made a curse for us. He was subject to all of God's promised just wrath for sinners. And there was no substitute for Christ, was there? There was no sacrifice that could take His place because none of the sacrifices could ever replace the spotless, harmless Lamb of God who was slain in His love for us, as the songwriter put it. And so there was a Lamb for little Isaac that God provided. There was no Lamb provided for Jesus. He is God's Lamb come to take away sin. And then, of course, Christ would be forsaken unto wrath and judgment by God there as He hung upon the cross. And that is, He that is eternally and infinitely loved by God and He whom Christ loves eternally and perfectly, that He would forsake Him unto judgment. People get all hung up on the forsaking of Christ by God. It doesn't mean that God became unaware of Him or left Him completely. God doesn't leave anything. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He has all knowledge. What it means is forsaken unto the wrath and judgment which our sins rightly deserve to fall upon Christ by the wrath of God. And that is what happened to Christ on the cross. And think about this, there was no hope of deliverance from the dying shame of the cross for the Lord Jesus. Not until after He had paid all the price and been buried in the tomb. And now that's on top of the physical cruelty and pain that the Romans had managed in their malignity and cruelness to engineer into the death on the cross that the one who created all things and gave life to all things, the Lord Jesus, should be subject to death and required to surrender that which is of the most value to man, life itself. All of these things were the cruelty of the cross, the shame of the cross, the horror of the cross, which Christ had to suffer in the prospect of the joy. And so it can be said that Christ endured all of that on the cross for His people. Now, in the Scriptures, there are many references to the anguish of Christ on the cross. We know Psalm 22 describes it in detail. Psalm 40, Psalm 69, we've talked of all those many times. But think of the two texts in the Gospels where Jesus expresses His distaste for the dread if you will for the cross in John 12 verse 20 we read this morning there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast and the same came therefore to Philip who was a Bethsaid of Galilee and desired him saying sir we would see Jesus and Philip cometh and telleth Andrew and Andrew and Philip tell Jesus Jesus answered them saying the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified now notice this This sharp contrast which Christ gives. The hour of His crucifixion is the time when the Son of Man should be glorified and yet it is very distressful to Christ in His humanity. But before He gets to that, He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. This is a reference to the fact that by Christ dying on the cross, He would bring life to a host of people who put their trust in Him. He's like the last kernel of corn that has any life in Him. And what good does it do for it to sit up on the shelf in the barn? Nothing. It's not even enough to eat, is it? It has to be planted in order for it to die in the ground and to bring forth a hundredfold of kernels of corn. And that's the image that He's invoking here is that He has all the life and we have none of it. And it would be terrible if He were to turn away from God's purpose, that He be glorified in the suffering and in the death. But then if He did that, He would not be the fountain and source of everlasting life for all of His people. We would all be dead in our sins and punished for all eternity. And then down at uh, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So here is the troubled soul of Christ revealed as He approaches unto the crucifixion. Now that the Gentiles want to see Jesus and want to hear the gospel, And you know, in His earthly ministry, Christ had very little for the Gentiles, didn't He? He came to save the lost sheep of Israel. And yet, the Scriptures had made clear that He would save people from all over the world, Jews and Gentiles alike. And now that there was interest being provoked in Christ and His ministry, even amongst Gentiles, now was the time, if He was to have anything to offer to the Gentiles that He must do the work and finish the job on the cross and make a propitiation for our sins and and empower and invigorate the gospel and call men to repentance and faith. But yet it troubles His soul. And He proposes that it could be that He could pray to the Father to save Him from this hour, but that was why He came here was to accomplish the sacrifice, the offering. It was foretold of old, and it was in the will and mind of God, Father, Son, and Spirit from before the foundation of the world that Christ must come and suffer as a substitute for the sin of his people. And then he said, What I'll do is focus on the glory of God, the glory of God's name, because what is more glorious than God saving poor lost men who've rebelled against him? and taking away their sin and offering His Son a sacrifice, a salvation that no mere man could ever have dreamed of or concocted at all. You see, our religions that we make up are all about what we can do to get on God's good side, to satisfy Him, to propitiate His anger. And it goes from works of charity, doing good, being kind to children and animals around the world, all the way to offering up your own children as a bloody sacrifice to a pagan deity that doesn't have any power or real existence except in your depraved heart and mind, nobody would ever come up with the idea of the offended God offering Himself a sacrifice to take away sin. And so the gospel and Christ's sacrifice is what delights the Father. It delights the Son. It delights all of the Lord's people who, when they first come to know it. And it's because it is the great glory of Christ that He was crucified in our place to save us. And it's the great glory of God His Father that He conceived so great a plan of redemption, so astounding a plan of redemption, that He withheld not His Son, His only Son, but delivered Him up for us all And He also gives to His people all good things in Christ. And so the Father would be glorified. And so Christ, as it were, consoles Himself in His troubled spirit that God would be glorified by what He had come to accomplish. This is part of the joy, you see, that was set before Christ, the glory of God, the exaltation of the God of all glory. And then there is that night that he was betrayed in the garden of Gethsemane. We know the incident well in Matthew 26, verse 38. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. But as thou wilt, and in Luke's gospel, 22 at verse 14, Luke describes this, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he cometh unto his disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Now, I believe that these texts are included in the Scriptures to provide evidence that Christ is not only God of very God, but He is also man. He is incarnate in our flesh. He has the same set of fears and hopes and desires and can understand our fears, hopes, and desires. And that, in fact, the cross was a humanly detestable thing for Him to have to undergo. And if there had been any other way that God had found by which He could save poor sinners whom He loves, no doubt this would not have been it. But Christ knew that it must be after all, he had already told by his Spirit the prophets, the details of the fact that he would indeed offer himself to be the sacrifice for sin to save his people. This text describes, however, the agony and the terror of Christ at the prospect of the cross, that is, his agony and terror in his humanity, and it is. Probably not so much a fear of death per se. Plenty of people can face death with a sort of fearlessness and a sort of resolution, even sometimes in anticipation of glory. But more likely over the prospect of being made sin for us. This was the terror of the cross for Jesus. Being treated as guilty in our place. How could any man who knows The true wrath of God for sin be any way other than horrified at the prospect. And so our Lord Jesus was horrified at the prospect, but He did not turn away. I preached decades ago this truth that for whatever Christ said in the Garden of Gethsemane, He stayed right there. He waited for Judas to betray Him there, didn't He? He didn't run away and hide. He went there on purpose, so that he could be betrayed and taken and crucified to fulfill his father's will and to fulfill his own will. How could any man who knows the true wrath of God for sin be anything other than terrified? It wasn't the pain or the dying itself, but the moral guilt to be laid on him and discharged upon him the innocent one that was the horror, and yet he knew that it would be his glory for all eternity that he had done this in obedience to God, to delight to do His will, and with the joy that was set before Him in it all, in saving His loved ones, saving you and me. Part of the joy that was set before Christ when He endured the cross and counted the shame as nothing was His joy in saving the people who have trusted in Him, who are sitting in this very room this morning remembering what He did giving thanks for it, you remember that the end of it was that great song of praise in Revelation 5 where it says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive all wisdom and honor and power and glory and blessing. For Thou was slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred, tongue and people and nation. So these are the songs that the saints will sing to the praise of Christ for all eternity. So there is a part of the joy that was set before him. Brother Gill has this to say about Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, a believer should be always looking to Christ and off of every other object. Christ is to be looked unto as Jesus, a Savior, who being appointed and sent by God to be a Savior, and has become the author of eternal salvation, and to Him only should we look for it. He is able and willing to save. He is a suitable, complete, and only Savior. And whoever looks to Him by faith shall be saved. And He is to be considered and looked upon as the author and finisher of faith. He is the author or cause of it, because all men are by nature without faith, It is not in the power of man to believe of himself. It is a work of omnipotence. It is an example of the exceeding greatness of the power of God. And faith is the operation of Christ by His Spirit. And the increase of faith is from Him. And He is the finisher of it. He gives Himself and the blessings of His grace to His people to maintain and strengthen it that is to maintain and strengthen our faith. He prays for it, that it fail not. He carries on the work of faith and will perform it with power and brings to and gives that which is the end of it eternal life or the salvation of the soul. Who for the joy that was set before Him. Christ, instead of being in the bosom of the Father, came into this world. Instead of being in the form of God, He appeared in the form of a servant. Instead of the glory which He had with His Father from eternity, He suffered shame and disgrace. Instead of living a joyful and comfortable life on earth, He suffered a shameful and an accursed death. And instead of the temporal joy and glory the Jews proposed to Him, He endured the shame and pain of the cross, for the sake of which Christ underwent so much disgrace and such sufferings namely for the sake of having a spiritual seed, a numerous offspring with Him in heaven, who are His joy and crown of rejoicing, for the sake of the salvation of all the elect on which His heart was set, and for the glorying of the divine perfections, which was no small delight and pleasure to Him, and also because of His own glory as mediator, which was to follow His sufferings and which includes His resurrection from the dead, His exaltation at the right hand of God, and the whole honor and glory Christ has in His human nature. He endured the cross, all His sufferings from His cradle to His cross, and particularly the tortures of the cross, being stretched out on it and nailed unto it, and especially the death of the cross, which kind of death He endured, to verify the predictions of it in Psalm 22, and to show that He was made a curse for His people. And this death He endured with great courage and intrepidity, with much patience and constancy, and in obedience to the will of His Father, despising the shame of the cross, for it was an ignominious death as well as a painful one. And as He endured the pain of it with patience, He treated the shame of it with contempt, counting it as nothing. Throughout the whole of his life, he despised the shame and reproach that was cast upon him and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, which is in heaven and shows the majesty and glory of God and of the honor done to Christ in human nature, which is not granted to any of the angels. Here Christ sits as God's fellow, as equal to Him, as God, and as having done His work as man and mediator, And this may assure us that when we have run out our race, we shall sit down too with Christ upon His throne and be at rest. You see, it was the fulfillment and completing of Christ's delight to do God's will that He endured the cross, despising the shame. But note, the writer of Hebrews cites Christ's delight and joy in the face of His dying sacrifice and all the terror it entailed, as our model in trouble, we are to anticipate the joy Christ has set before us and lay hold on it by faith and face every trial and trouble and pain and heartache like Jesus did. And it won't be anything near as bad as what Jesus faced which makes it all the more poignant that Jesus, who had done nothing amiss, suffered far greater than His poor, sinful, beloved ones, and we receive all the benefits of Christ's suffering. He suffered all due to us so that we might be rescued from all suffering that was due to us. And that fact brings joy to Christ. And joy to us and ought to give us courage to endure to the end, looking unto Jesus, looking to His joy, and how the prospect of that joy powered Him through to the end of glory. My mind was brought to this text in Psalm 21, which if you remember is the psalm that just precedes that Psalm 22 describing Christ's humiliation and sorrow at the cross. But listen to what Psalm 21 says. The King shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation how greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire and hast not withholden the request of his lips. For thou presentest him with the blessings of goodness. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked life of thee and thou gavest it him even length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him, for thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. And so it might be said of the Lord Jesus, speaking to his Father, that he rejoices in the salvation of God, which he has wrought for his people. Christ exalts in so great a salvation. And the joy set before Him was so great that He endured the cross and counted the shame as nothing and so too ought we. I love the words to that hymn by Philip P. Bliss. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse to set me free. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save in His boundless love and mercy He the ransom freely gave. I will praise my dear Redeemer His triumphant power I'll tell how the victory He giveth o'er sin and death and hell. I will sing of my Redeemer and His heavenly love for me. He from death to life hath bought me Son of God with Him to be. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. With His blood He purchased me. On the cross He sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. So around this table we sing the praises of Him who died, the one who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And so we can see that the Lord Jesus, from beginning to end, He delighted to do the will of God He delighted to do the will of God to save His people. And now we delight that He delighted to do the will of God. And we delight in Him. And we delight in the Father. And they both delight in their poor people whom they have loved and saved by the death of the Lord Jesus. And at this table, we're reminded of how it is that we come to be here that the Lord Jesus laid down His life for us, gave His body to be torn and riven as a sacrifice for us, poured out His blood to make atonement for us, and left us these symbols so that we would never ever forget, we would be pointed to them day in and day out, week in and week out, that we might never forget the sacrifice Christ made and the glorious consequence of it. He gave us life by His body and by his blood. Let's give thanks first for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we we rejoice in the joy of Christ. We rejoice that he had that joy set before him and it pushed him through to the completion of the detestable task of being made an offering for the sin of His people, being treated as guilty by You on the cross, having all the wrath that we should have received exhausted upon His sacred head. Thank You that He left us these symbols. Thank You that He left us this bread to remind us that all of our life depends upon feeding upon the body of Christ, that all of our hope and joy are wrapped up in the offering He made that it was not a mere spiritual thing or a hank filled thing, but it was a real flesh-and-blood sacrifice by a real flesh-and-blood man. The Lord Jesus incarnate in human flesh, but God of very God, who came to save His people from their sin. Bless us as we partake of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it, And He said, take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my father if he would give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood. For the remission of sin, do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 488 in the big blue book. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse to set me free. 488.